0: This uh, scripture reading will be taken from 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 7 through 11. 1st Peter 4, 7 through 11. <laughs> but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. That's a vibrant good evening tonight. That's good news. It was a little sleepy to me tonight. Just uh, I didn't get my nap this afternoon. Did anybody get their nap? Everybody ready to go? Yeah? Good. I see you back there, Tom. Good to see Tom and Fran tonight. Great to see you. All right. Well, you may not need this introduction, but I know that I do. Um, my mind has been in several places um, in study and preparation. And if you are... You know, a regular attender, which most of you are. Um, I recognize a lot of faces. When you come to be a part of our fellowship here, you get several different uh, series of teachings happening in the course of a week. So, um, If you just happen to come on Sunday morning, you're going to get um, a lot of the teaching from creation to the birth of Christ right now in our Bible class and then in um, uh, the sermon. If you're coming on Wednesday nights, we're talking about the idea of the person and work of Jesus called Christology. Um, if you come on Sunday nights, we've been doing a series of teaching on 1 Peter, elect exiles. And so uh, you get a lot of things from a different angles. And so um, I just want to do a quick recap of where we are because we're turning the corner and bringing our study of 1 Peter to close in the next couple weeks. Um, the series of teaching that we've called elect exiles as we study through the book of 1 Peter um, is, ho- is intended to be an exposition of the book, just exegetical, walking through the text, seeing what Peter is trying to teach the Christians. But Peter is addressing a group of believers, a group of Christians, who are not in one particular town or one particular church with a certain set of problems, but they are dispersed throughout all of a particular area in the world, different places. But they're all facing a very similar problem. They are a group of Christians who are living in a world, a culture, that is largely non-Christian. The worldview of the culture in which they live is not Christian. It's very Greco-Roman. And these people have a worldview that is different than that, and they're what we call Christians. And because of that, they're facing a lot of hostility due to their strange worldview. They're suffering mental and social anguish. Very minimal at this time physical suffering is actually happening. Just to clarify in our minds, um, at this point, the Roman Empire is not persecuting the Christians um, like they would eventually here in just a few years. Right now, a lot of what they're experiencing is slander. They're being lied about. Their good is being spoken of as if it were evil, actually. So, So it's not just that they're called evil. They're saying the things that Christians do is an evil thing like Jesus being called a son of Beelzebub. Um, And also they are being ostracized from their local communities. They're suffering in their local context, being left out, being uh, slandered and talked about. And so um, they're facing a lot of hostility because they hold a belief in the resurrected Son of God, Jesus Christ. And we say all that to say this, that this reflects much of what is transpiring in the culture in which we're living today. If you ever want to, um, I, I do this oftentimes now, I've found a couple preachers in the UK that I like to listen to. Um, whenever preachers are going to preach you know, a series upcoming, we usually go and grab what other people have done and try to feed ourselves and learn. And if you go to the UK and listen to, to some of the preachers there, they're about 30 or 40 years ahead of us on uh, their culture shifts. And you'll hear a lot of the very interesting things that they say. There's one that I listen to, a man by the name of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached uh, mainly in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And if you listen to what he's saying, it's very contemporary for American culture. Well, anyway, um, our culture is, exfe- uh, is experiencing much in the same of what Peter's culture was dealing with. Christianity is oftentimes, as it was in Peter's day now today, being seen as trivial or you know, ignorant, um, regressive. Maybe even just foolish, like why would you believe stuff like that? We're beyond that. We're advanced from that kind of foolish thinking. And Christians suffer because of a Christian worldview to a certain degree. The question that Peter answers for us that we're hopefully asking together in preparation for this is how should we live? How should Christians navigate a non-Christian culture Because for the better part of 150 years or so, maybe a little bit more, American Christians have experienced a very dominant Christian culture where if your neighbors didn't practice Christianity, they at least thought and acted in a world that was very much Christian to a certain degree. So what Peter has been doing in our series up to this point, the first six lessons, he's been anchoring individual Christian minds with his words. Individuals. He's been seeking to settle your mind with some very core principles of the Christian faith. Things like a higher hope, that we are longing for something better than this place and we are longing to be a better version of what we are now. And the Christian hope offers that solution and we anchor ourselves to that hope. He's told us about a greater calling, that we are called to obey not man but God. He's called us to a greater purpose, that our role in the world is to be the priests of God, meaning to connect people to the presence of God. That's what priests do. Along with that, he's been informing us that our lives should be marked by a nature of submission. We learn that by submitting first and foremost to the God that we revere, being willing to submit to those things that are in our life, not out of relinquishing, but out of our nature that we know that we have a greater hope. And with that, we not only have submission, but we have reason. Christianity is a reasonable worldview. In fact, every ounce of our faith and every bit of our hope should be able to be articulated reasonably. We should be able to do that. And in light of all that, Peter says that we should be prepared to suffer for that. And all of this is anchored to what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so, what makes us ready to endure this suffering? If you read with Aaron tonight in verse 7, there's one simple shift in mind that Peter lets us know that is going to get you ready to endure suffering. It's a perspective change. Look in verse 7. He says, The end of all things is at hand. That simple paradigm shift. That Not, you know, not everybody thinks of the world in that light. And Peter is revealing to Christians a paradigm shift that takes your present suffering and puts it in the context of not a day, a week, or a month, or even a bad year, but puts it into a context of the end of all things is at hand. In light of that, that's the backdrop of Christian suffering. That's what empowers us to endure. And so what Peter is referencing here actually has nothing to do with time. When he said the end of all things is at hand, he's not talking about you know, a date on the calendar or a time on your watch. What he's referring to is an objective. That word end is the word teleos, and we've seen that several times in the Greek New Testament. And what it means is things being brought to their perfect completion, to where they're supposed to be. When Jesus said you should be perfect as your Father is perfect, he said you should be teleos. You should be complete like Him. And so what Peter is saying here is that the end, the principal goal of life, the principal objective of the mission of God from the very beginning is now here. Doesn't that sound good? I'm talking thousands of years, histories, eons, generations of time have passed and Peter says we are now living in the moment when God is actively accomplishing the end objective that He would restore humanity not only to Himself, but to their very image and likeness, which is to be like God. That's what God is doing right now. And in light of that, that end being here that God is aiming to accomplish, you and I can prepare us. We can be prepared for an eternal dwelling. Therefore, we're ready to suffer. And one major aspect to eternity. So if we have... Eternal things in mind, not speaking just specifically of a time on the clock or a date on the calendar, but eternity, life without time, where we will be in the presence of God. There's one major aspect to eternity that is experienced that we need to keep in mind. Eternity is not experienced in isolation. The only eternal state of isolation is hell. You know that's the ultimate end of hell? is that you continue to draw down into your... The seed of sin is just self, like being full of yourself. That the whole world is about me. That's what Eve did. She traded God being on the throne of her heart, obeying God and saying, I think I actually can make better decisions about what will bring me joy in life. Therefore, I will do this and not that. That's the seed of sin, replacing God on the throne of your life with yourself. And the ultimate end of selfishness is self. All alone. Empty. Kind of eerie, isn't it? That's the concept of darkness, that there's nothing left. And so, eternity with God is the opposite of isolation. What's the opposite of isolation? Fellowship. You see, the one major aspect of eternity that matters is that we will experience this as a group. Together. There's a togetherness to eternity. Um, We will be together. The key element in enduring suffering in light of the eternal objective is for you and I, for us to endure the suffering as Christians in a non-Christian culture. If we're going to do this, you and I have to be growing what Peter refers to three times in this text as a one another mentality. Three times He says there's a one another nature to what we're doing. We have to have a one another component in our life. We are made to be beings that fellowship. And Peter says the one another aspect of your life is going to empower you to press to eternity. And so thinking about one another in light of eternity will drastically change the way that we treat each other. Did you know that? That the moment you and I start thinking about we're going to spend eternity together we will drastically change how we treat each other immediately. If you think about that we're going to spend all of eternity with God together, we don't want that to be awkward, do we? We don't want that to be uncomfortable. We want it to be good, and, Paul, and God wants it to be good, and He's drilling us down to a place where it will be good. Let me give you an example. Um, when I drive, this is just confession time, so you can withhold judgment. When I drive and someone is in front of me who's not operating their motor vehicle the way that I believe that that motor vehicle should be operated, you know, whether they are not paying attention to a light, driving 32 in a 45, in a one-lane road, you know, when they're operating their car in a way that I just don't really appreciate the way that they're operating their car, sometimes I then, in turn, operate my car in a way that really embarrasses Lisa, and anybody else have that? No? All right. You're just going to leave me hang out to dry? That's fine. That's fine. I'll take it. Okay. Well, sometimes I do that. You know what the worst thing that can happen when you, you know, do that? Is to end up going to the same place that person is going. Right? Did any of you ever like, okay, no, I'm not even going to ask you to confess. I'll leave it alone. Because you know you do it. But do you ever do that? You're like, you know, you're just, come on, man, get it. Let's go. I got to go. My kids are crying. They're hungry. I got to get to the restaurant. And then they go to Max and Irma's, too, right? You're like, oof. You hold the door for them, try to make it. But do you see how the way we treat each other is changed when we know that we're going to spend time together? Now, take that to an eternal stratosphere. We're going to spend eternity together. That changes the way that we spend our time together now. That changes the way that we develop our, what I'm going to keep referring to as our one another nature. And what Peter offers us is the insight into this one other aspect of our life that is crucial to enduring suffering and becoming the people God wants us to be. He does two things. The first thing he does is he calls us to be a people who are private, privately focused in prayer. Very privately focused in prayer. And secondly, we are people who are corporately fervent in love. Do you get them both? Privately focused in prayer. Corporately fervent in love. Let's start with the prayer. I won't spend a lot of time on this because we did um, some work on prayer this morning. But there's two things that dictate our prayer life from Peter. You notice in verse 7, he says, "...the end of all things is at hand." Therefore, in light of that eternal nature, there's two things He tells you to be. Now, my English Standard Version says it this way. says that we ought to be, first, self-controlled, and second, sober-minded for the sake of our prayer life. Focused, private prayer is driving this. And there's two things that's going to change your prayer life or dictate your prayer life. The first thing is to be self-controlled. Now, um, if you notice, when Aaron was reading this, he had a totally different word. I don't even remember what it was. It threw me off so much. Um, is it, what, what other words do you have? Serious? And we have watchful? Vigilant? What, anybody else have a different word? Okay, no one has a Bible? That's fine. Alright. Self-controlled is what... Uh, Aaron's translated serious. Mine's translated self-controlled. It's kind of a tough word to translate, but what it's getting at is... Let me try to explain this. what this word means. It's kind of difficult. But he says, in the place of your life, um, Americans call it their heart. The Greeks called it their gut or their stomach. Um, The Bible sometimes calls it your soul, your will, your mind. In the center part of you that really directs your life, you know, where your beliefs are stored, where all your mind is, the thing that directs the way that you live your life, he says that part of you, has got to be in the right place. In fact, it really means the safe place. The part of you that directs your life that says, I believe this, I believe that, here's what I'm going to do. In response to this, I'm going to react this way. That part of you that is like Americans call their heart, the Greeks called their, their gut or their soul, that part of us, that mind of us that drives who we are and what we do, he says that part of you has got to get into a place That is safe to live. That's what self-control means. You see, you and I really are walking trauma survivors. Now, if you study trauma, you'll see people that experience external trauma, that something very traumatic happens in their life. They have a lot of difficulties following trauma. Now, on a spiritual level, every one of us have experienced, whether we know it or not, the traumatic effects of sin in our life. You see, that center part of us has been harmed, has been affected by the fact that sin has not only entered our world, but entered our life. And now we make decisions, we believe things, we do things that are not based upon the truth of God, but based upon the effect, the harmful effect of sin. And what, Paul, or what Peter is saying is you've got to get that part of you back to that safe place. Sin has ravaged the core of mankind, whether you call it heart, soul, or mind, the center of us. And grace has to work its full healing, and it hasn't yet in any of us to its fullest degree. We you and I must be vigilant in getting our mind, our center, into the safety of grace, which promotes a life of constant prayer. When you know that the center of you is, is constantly being harmed and affected by the sin in the world and the sin in us... That drives you to be what the Bible calls self-controlled, meaning get that center of you to the healing measure of God's grace. That's what cleans up your mind so that you become vigilant in prayer. Now, the second thing he says, not just self control but sober-minded. This means living your life free from being in delusion, free from being lied to, free from being deceived. Your mind needs to be sober with the truth. You and I must be willing to see and to know what is actually true about life. Not just living in the lies we tell ourselves. Yes, we all lie to ourselves about how the world is to try to survive. And the lies that we so easily believe to escape the painful reality of truth. When you and I are sobered by truth, the only option is prayer. When you are face to face, whether it's in a mirror with yourself or in the light of the reality of the world, when you're faced with truth, it leaves you the only option to pray. And what Peter is saying is you've got to get your center into the safe place of God's grace. And you've got to be willing to look hard, be sobered by the truth. And when you do, you will be vigilant, fervent in private prayer. And now private prayer, every one of us, our private prayer drives the heart of of this community, the community that we live in. And so Peter reminds us to be focused in prayer so we will be, as he says in verse eight, fervent in our love for each other. When we are aware of the devastating effect of sin, what it does to ourselves to get that back to the safe place, and we are in light of the truth sober because of how real life is, that only empowers us to look at each other and say, man, we've got to love each other. Because it's tough out there. We're being ravaged. As Peter's going to say, how does Peter describe Satan to us in chapter 5? Like a roaring lion seeking whom he may. Think Peter knows something about the reality of life? And his private prayer, fighting for the health of his soul, drives his fervent love for his brothers and sisters. Our private prayer in self-controlled and sober-mindedness will make us people that look at each other and say, hey, we're in this together. Even if we bother each other, I'm going to love you. I'm going to fervently love you. Now, here's what he says about fervent love in verse 8. He says to bring our love, um, uh, let me read verse 8. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly or fervently. What he's saying is bring our love to the maximum potential that it is supposed to exist in. Stretch that thing out to where it's living in the way that it's supposed to live for each other. In doing this, he says we're going to cover a multitude of sins. Now, Peter is referring back to a proverb, I believe it's chapter 17, where love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? This is not the same word. The word cover? is not the same word as the Bible uses for the word atone, to to atone for sin. What Jesus did with his blood in covering over the detrimental effect of our sin before God. This word cover actually is the word we would use to envelop something, to absorb something, to swallow up something. Fervent love for each other is the absorbing of the sin that we see. This doesn't mean that we forego accountability. This doesn't mean that we let go of our requirement to confront each other. In fact, we're going to see that this covering of the multitude of sins gives us the space to actually do that the right way. Because, let me give you a couple examples. Uh, This is the best way I understood it, because that that phrase can be lost in some atonement concept. But what it means to cover sin, this fervent love we have for each other, Uh, A few examples might be this. When we hear gossip, we don't pass it on. I'm with a brother or sister. They gossip or I gossip. In that moment, fervent love says, I will absorb that and I'm not going to pass it on. I'm going to absorb that wrong and not continue to harm somebody. You with me? Let me give you another example. Um, Being patient with a Christian who is less mature than you who's not ready to handle the seven-point outline that you have about how life should be lived because they are in the early stages of just waddling through life. And they have all the fervor and all the energy in the world. In fact, I, I do this a lot with um, uh, young Christians that are going into ministry. Um, it's kind of weird I'm getting old enough where there's some people a little bit younger than me that are doing that. And I think God does that to remind me how much I should thank the people that were older than me that endured with me. Because the problem with young people, and I still fall into this category, is we are so good at identifying what's broken and have not the first clue how to fix a thing. Like, we don't know how to fix anything. We've got a lot of energy about what's broken, you know. We can pinpoint all the deficiencies. That's what young people can do, and, and that's great. But we really struggle at how to fix things. And so older Christians being patient with the energy, but sometimes... Overzealousness of immature Christians is covering a multitude of sins. Younger Christians being patient and respectful of elderly Christians who lived in an era when they, you know, maybe that their era has passed by them and now they're in the gray season of their life. Younger Christians being patient with older Christians who see life differently than them, having respect, not because you agree with them but because they're in a position that they're older than you, even if you disagree with them, it's absorbing some of the effects of sin in our fellowship. Are you with me? Fervent love for each other absorbs the detrimental effect of sin. And so the key meaning of this really is to have a relationship with each other that we gently can turn people from sin when the time is right. James also quotes this in James chapter 5 when he says, He who turns a brother from the error of his way saves a soul from death, and he covers a multitude of sin. You see, we're so quick sometimes to turn a brother from sin, right? But how much have we done in absorbing How much have we done in fervent love? And that's what Peter's getting at. So how do we do this? Because Peter starts verse 8 saying, keep loving each other fervently. How, Peter? How do we show this? There's two ways. He says that we are to be hospitable and we are to be servant-minded. At the end of verse 8 there, I'm sorry, verse 9, he says, show hospitality to one another. The second time you see one another without grumbling. Peter knew human nature. He said, show hospitality without grumbling. Now, for this day and age, when Peter was saying this, it most likely meant to welcome strangers into your home. They didn't have the Holiday Inn Express, and so when um, traveling ministers, evangelists, um, teachers would come, they would have to be housed in somebody's home. Um, If somebody didn't have a home, they would have to be taken in to, uh, to be cared for. And what he was referring to is to spread the gospel that we ought to be hospitable, to give these people a safe Place to stay is what it means to be hospitable. But this has a much broader application than just having a room for somebody to live in your house for a night or two. You see, we live in a world full of strangers. Whether a person is a stranger of God, as Paul would describe in Ephesians, we are alien strangers, absent from the promise of God. We're strangers to God. That's a stranger. And oftentimes we're strangers of each other. No names, no the kind of car we drive, no where people live, the jobs they have, but oftentimes we're strangers. And his advice to this, his counsel to this, is that you and I should be hospitable people. We should have hospitality running through our veins. And so, what it means to be hospitable, hospitality um, is not the method by which we employ just to change people. But hospitality is the method by which we give people the space for change to happen. Now, I really butchered that sentence, so I need to say it a little bit clearer. Hospitality is not used to change people. But hospitality is used to give people the space for change to take place. Hospitality is the foundation for all real fellowship in the church. It empowers transformation. It empowers real accountability. It empowers good endurance with each other. It empowers love and care amongst the brothers. Hospitality is the lifeblood for all the other important fellowship aspects of church to take place. Hospitality matters. The challenge I would leave for you on a very practical level is, I really believe we should be bringing people into our homes But that's not necessarily just what hospitality means. It's an important practical concept that we ought to be bringing people into our homes. But really what hospitality means is to make space available for somebody to come dwell. And if you are here, like most of us, might be saying, Well, okay, sounds great, but I don't know when I could. My gentle call to you tonight. I might even push farther than gentle to call for repentance is to make necessary space to be hospitable. You see, he's not saying go find somebody who will take you in. He's saying you be somebody to make space in your life, carved out, free from um, being accounted for, space for somebody to come dwell in. No agenda necessary. No come over, I need to talk to you about this, this, and this, but just come over and make space for somebody to dwell in. Now, I say that tonight, and it's December what? Like 6th or 7th or something like that? If we make a commitment to that, we won't see fruit until probably June, July, August of next year. But I'm talking about real practical, down-to-earth things that will change the culture of our church. Being hospitable people that, that say, you know what, I'm going to work for the next three months to make time in my schedule... And I'm going to stop living this maxed out, I have no room for anybody but me and my family life. And I'm going to carve out time so that on Tuesday, night, I've got nothing going on. And for a while, it's kind of awkward. You know, home, 435, 530. You're like, what do I do? I don't know. Get used to that. and Make space for somebody to come into that space and just exist. That's what it means to be hospitable. The other thing he tells us to do is serve. And there's two ways. He says that we serve by speaking and we serve by ministering. Um, Key ways in speaking would be things like being an encouragement, if you're good at that. Um, One of the things that's really crucial about this text in verse 10 is he says, each one has received a gift, and there's two categories of gift. One, some people have the gift of speaking and some people have the gift of ministering or serving. Uh, The gift of speaking would be things like encouragement, exhorting teaching, preaching, singing, evangelism, apologetics, reasoning, things like that. That's the gift of speaking. Uh, The gift of serving would be things like leadership. Uh, Leadership isn't always a speaking role. Leadership is the ability to say, here's where we need to go. Here's how we're going to get there. You go there, you go there, and you do this, and here's how we're going to do that. That's not always speaking. Um, Ministry like help ministries, benevolence, mercy-driven ministries like caring for the poor and you know, clothing drive, food drive, things of that nature, and the gift of administration, people that know how to take care of things and put things into order. These are the ways that we serve one another. And so we're hospitable to one another. We serve one another with the gifts that we have been given. But notice very carefully, and I'll be done, that these gifts are done out of the resources supplied to us by God. You see, when he says about speaking, look down in verse 11. Whoever speaks, exhorting, encouraging, teaching, ministering, preaching, whoever speaks, look where he gets the resource, or she. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks, the oracles of God. Now, Peter specifically doesn't use just the word Scripture here. Peter uses the word Scripture in his letter. When he says oracles of God, He's talking about words that have come to you from God, from Scripture, meaning you've understood them, they've benefited you, they've helped you. These are the living oracles of God. And so words that are given to you by God, God's Word that has been spoken to you in your hurt, in your sin, in your grief, in your fear, as you've been blessed by God's Word, you are being empowered with ministry to spill over into somebody else's life. Now look at service in verse 11. So whoever speaks is the one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Strength given to you by God. That's how you serve. You serve because you have been served graciously by your God. You see, the energy that fuels our fervent love shown in hospitality and service for one another is that which we have received from God. You can't really serve or speak in blessing to someone else if you're not really receiving words and service from God. The fact that we are now one another with God, through the work of Jesus Christ, that you and I can be together with God in a reconciled relationship, when you understand that, it empowers you to go build a one another with each one of us. You cannot have a one another with God without motivating a one another with each other. And the only way you get a restored relationship with God is through His Word and His work on your behalf. The person of Jesus Christ was the ultimate expression of God's Word. John called Him that. He said, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word became flesh. God's Word came and took on form displayed to us in living form what God's Word really looks like. But it didn't just stop there as example. God's Word as a man, Jesus Christ, didn't just do something in His words. He lived His sacrifice. And when you receive Him, He fills you so full that all you can do is spill out, like the psalmist would say, my cup runs over. And from the abundance of love, grace, mercy and strength that you receive from the cross of Jesus Christ, you'll build a powerful one another with God that will spill over into building a powerful one another with us that is laying the foundation for an eternity together. Sounds good, doesn't it? I'd hate for you to miss it. If you're on the path of missing it, let's uh, do something about it tonight. Let's stand and sing.